0: Good afternoon. Thank you, Thomas, for the invitation and your kind introduction. Thanks to everybody for coming. A few hours before the charismatic John Bolton is giving his speech at the (laughs) University of Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) The broad public debates on religion and ethics, on the importance of religious faith for social integration and the transmission of values, or on the dangers for toleration and peace that may be the result of religious orientations all these broad public debates frequently suffer from empirical deficiencies all sides tend to argue in a way one might call an a priori mode of argumentation such a mode of reasoning assumes an alleged essence of religion in general or of the Christian or Islamic faith in particular and then deduces from this essence that faith is indispensable or dangerous. A parallel phenomenon can be observed when reason as such is assumed to be the source of morality or when others declare that reason can never be or become such a source. I certainly do not intend to deny that a great number of philosophical edifices erected on such essentialist foundations are very impressive, but I nevertheless propose a more strictly empirical orientation as a way out of certain impasses in these debates. When I say empirical, I do not naively assume that philosophical questions with their inevitable normative implications can be completely answered by empirical statements about facts. What I mean by empirical is rather an attitude that overcomes an a priori reasoning that opens itself up to the richness of historical cultural phenomena that prejudges only few things on a merely conceptual level. My role model in this regard in the area of research about values and religion is the great American pragmatist, philosopher and psychologist William James particularly his classical work of 1902 The Varieties of Religious Experience. In this book as you probably all know, he kept his distance from all dogmatic presuppositions in the study of religion be they theological or secularist by taking his point of departure not in religious doctrines or institutions but in the dynamics of religious experience. Religious doctrines are then considered to be interpretations of such experiences. Religious institutions organize such experiences and make them permanent. This point of departure already lies beyond the dichotomy of believers versus non-believers because non-believers in this perspective have similar experiences and at least an imaginary access to the experiences analyzed here experiences I call in my books experiences of self-transcendence where self-transcendence is not transcendence so it's not immediately a religious term but a descriptive you could say psychological term about a certain quality of human experience in in his investigation James strictly insisted on the falsifiable status of all his propositions when he said for example that the greatest examples of asceticism and the most heroic acts of moral de-centering have so far only occurred in cases of deeply religious persons his way to put it made it clear that he did not want to make a dogmatic statement denying that similar ascetic achievements or acts of moral heroism could in the future be brought about by non-religious people or that they could not have been such acts in the past the 20th century with its heroic acts in the name of secular ideals like the nation, the victory of the Aryan race or communism, would probably have led James to modify his thesis. My own conclusion is that it is better to speak of sacrality here where he spoke of religious motivation and that the sacrality or sacredness of ideals and the ensuing emotional energies can very well be tied to secular contents but such an empirical attitude in the controversies about religion is to be recommended not only for such abstract general methodological reasons but also because of a specific feature of these current debates and now this is a point that is very important for me in some of my writings I've already made the assertion that the specific historical moment in which we find ourselves and debate religious questions is defined by the death of two apparent certainties. On the one hand most secularists since the 18th century have assumed that history is on their side and that modernization in the sense of economic growth and scientific technological progress inevitably leads to a decline of religion in the long run even to its disappearance this idea had its original foundation mostly in the history of France perhaps some other Western European countries through Marxism it became an official state ideology in 20th century Eastern Europe and the basis for enforced secularization in the last two decades this whole so-called secularization theory or maybe it's not even a theory but assumption secularization thesis has more or less collapsed and this for internal as well as for external reasons I will not go into that but only mention the most important reason for this collapse which is in my eyes the growing insight that the alleged causal connection between modernization and secularization is not confirmed in the modernization processes outside Europe with few exceptions, like some so-called settler societies, New Zealand, Uruguay. Less and less the US is therefore treated as a special case in need of explanation. Modernization in other parts of the globe does not usually lead to secularization and the history of European secularization therefore appears more and more as a contingent process these empirical results do not hinder anybody of course to welcome or support processes of secularization but after the end of the secularization thesis, secularism clearly has to defend itself without a philosophy of history and a narrative of progress. I mentioned the end of two apparent certainties however. It is important for me not to speak about the end of the secularization thesis in a triumphalist voice, but to add immediately that the old counter-thesis to the secularization thesis has also lost its credibility. While secularists are always tempted to believe in a necessary connection between modernization and secularization, religious believers tend to make claims about the indispensability of faith for for example mental health, moral motivation and or societal consensus they thus consider secularization a danger for health, morality and peace but this thesis that came up when the rise of the secular option put religious faith on the defensive has also come to an end, I think. Again, both for internal and external reasons. By internal reasons, I refer to the fact that despite all possible empirically verifiable connections between religious faith and mental health, moral altruism, etc., nobody can become a believer on the mere basis of rational insight into such connections. This would reduce religious faith to a therapy of auto-suggestion. By external reasons, I refer to the fact that the rise of secularized societies today allows the empirical examination of these assumptions. When in the 19th century important thinkers and there are always references to Dostoevsky and Nietzsche here, declared that without a belief in God everything would be permissible, and therefore morality impossible, there were no truly secularist societies. There were only a few national milieus, some of them liberal, some of them proletarian, in which faith had almost disappeared. Not until the late 1960s in Western Europe, not until the late 1950s in Eastern Europe could one really speak of deeply secularized societies in this sense secularization on a broad scale is historically new now so far and this I would like to say in this Jamesian attitude I described so far we cannot observe moral decline in the most profoundly secularized European societies like East Germany, the Czech Republic, Estonia and in, different, in a different way Great Britain, Scandinavia as the fact that the modernizing world outside Europe does not experience secularization is an objection against the secularization thesis. the fact that there is no moral decline in strongly secularized European societies is an objection against the assumption that secularization is necessarily morally destructive or it should at least give pause to those who defend this thesis. In public debates about spectacular incidents of infanticide, neglect of children or corruption in the post-communist world, a loss of faith is frequently mentioned as the cause of such crimes or grievances. But this clearly happens in a non-scientific manner such statements would have to be corroborated in historical or international comparisons if they are intended to have a causal character but I don't know of any such serious investigation on the contrary corruption for example can often be found in deeply religious societies just think of the so-called amoral families if you know this expression by Edward Banfield about southern Italy and the home of the mafia so to speak yeah. The number of violent acts in the US is about 5 times the European average and this in an intensely religious country. Mere correlations of religion with crime for example do not answer cannot answer causal questions. At first sight at least neither negatively nor positively religion seems to be the explanation here now the question contained in my title whether secularization leads to moral decline so far seems to have a clearly negative answer (coughs) more interesting than this statement however is the reflection on the causes for this state of affairs as the refutation of the secularization thesis can trigger new reflections on what religious faith is and how we have to revise our ideas about modernization if we no longer assume secularization to be its corollary, the growing implausibility of the assumption that secularization destroys morality can be an impulse to reconsider the relationship between morality and religion. I will proceed in four steps. First, I ask whether the morality of secularized societies could be a mere remnant or reverberation of religious traditions. Secondly, I will briefly investigate with regard to tribal societies whether religion should be considered to be constitutive for morality at all. Thirdly, I will use an example from Christian missionary work to look at the interaction of new religion and traditional morality. And lastly, I will bring together these reflections by claiming that normative regulations have a double origin and I will mark the precise point where I do indeed see a present danger of moral regression caused by secularization. So first, since the secularization above all of women is a relatively young historical phenomenon. You may know that, for example, around 1900, many German social democratic workers lost their religious faith, but not their wives. And so they did not leave the church because their wives didn't allow them, so to speak. Yeah? They insisted on uh, remaining faithful to the church or to the churches. So since the secularization of women particularly, is a relatively young historical phenomenon, dating mostly from the 1960s, it is more or less impossible to make empirically warranted claims about the long-term intergenerational effects of secularization processes on moral orientations, if we don't restrict ourselves to the most superficial level like normative attitudes with regard to questions where the difference between church doctrines and contemporary views is particularly big, for example with regard to contraception. If one is interested in the deeper layer of moral judgment, one has to make a detour and look at the persistence of religious, for example denominational differences over time. One of the most interesting studies in this area was published by the former Chicago sociologist Andrew Greeley in 1989, in the American Sociological Review. Following the great Chicago theologian, former member of the Committee on Social Thought, David Tracy, Greeley distinguished between a Protestant and a Catholic imagination. Such an imagination is said to be the origin of theological and ethical codes. but to be itself pre-propositional and metaphorical. According to this view, differences in certain doctrines or ethical conceptions are not the truly decisive area, but only manifestations of more deeply seated distinctions. Tracy spoke of an analogical versus a dialectical imagination. In the Catholic analogical worldview, God is seen to be present in his creation whereby the world participates in the divine. The Protestant worldview on the other hand sees the world as being radically distinct from God so that God only rarely reveals himself in the world, particularly in Jesus Christ. For Catholics, social relations are therefore evidence of the presence of God in the world. For Protestants, the individual is only fully human when it enters into a freely chosen and unmediated relationship to God, whereas social life is necessarily far from God. These contrasting ideas about individuality and sociality are themselves the point of departure for very different attitudes regarding the role of institutionalized religion and regarding many ethical and political questions. These differences, for example, become visible in education. I quote Greeley, Protestants will value in their children the virtues of initiative, integrity, industry and thrift more than Catholics, while Catholics will value loyalty, obedience and patience. Protestants will be especially likely to deplore vices which diminish personal integrity, honesty and sense of duty. Catholics will be especially likely to be offended by actions which seem to violate relationship networks through adultery, prostitution or suicide. Other studies emphasize the different views on the role of intentions. Whether good intentions are crucial for the moral evaluation of acts or not, and on the status of moral propositions, whether they are viewed as norms or as ideals. There is no question that the great theological disputes in the Christian tradition cannot really be schematized in such a simple, dichotomous manner. Both Tracy and Greeley are fully aware of this. Moreover, the description of the Protestant imagination is clearly based not on German Lutheranism but on the more radical versions dominant in the English-speaking world. But this is not my topic here. Of much greater interest is the question of the persistence of such deep-seating religious imaginations. On the basis of data from the International Study of Values in the 1980s, the result is that 21 out of 36 variables show a statistically significant correlation of denomination and value orientation in the assumed direction. In all countries that were part of the investigation, Protestants are more likely to emphasize freedom and individualism, Catholics are more likely to emphasize equality and fairness. In the English-speaking countries, the differences are bigger than on the European continent. They are bigger in Great Britain, Ireland, Canada and Australia than in the US, probably because in these countries denominational differences are more interwoven with ethnic distinctions than in the US the most important result for my present purposes is that these differences are not smaller do not get smaller if only younger people are taken into consideration this (coughs) means that new generations will probably not be less influenced by the fundamental structures of these religious imaginations if this is true however and I would like to repeat if this imagination precedes conscious reflection, then it is probable that the structures of this imagination remain effective even if people distance themselves from the religious traditions they have been raised in. In this case we cannot even speak of a secular worldview as if there were one unitary alternative to religious worldviews we would rather have to assume that all secular worldviews still bear the traces of the religious imaginary out of which they have emerged, either because of clear continuities with the religious tradition or because of the fact that they are intended to be the negation of a specific religious view. This suggestion would help to interpret well-known observations, for example, that the secularized moral and political culture of Sweden is of a deeply Lutheran-Protestant character, or that Soviet Stalinism was to some extent an imitation of orthodox models. You may also have heard the story from Northern Ireland about a pedestrian crossing the line separating Catholic and Protestant quarters in a small town who is asked at gunpoint to which religious community he belongs. When he answers that he is an atheist, the response is Catholic or Protestant atheist. (laughs) There seems to be a persistence of fundamental structures of morally relevant perception over long spans of time. This makes it possible that an older imaginary may remain crucial even under conditions of secularization, if this secularization does not suppress certain articulations of the imaginary by force. A definitive empirically based statement on the long-term effects of widespread secularization is, as I said, not possible yet. Two additional aspects would however be important for it. The motive for secularization can itself be deeply moral. It is ridiculous when so-called new atheists like Dawkins and Dennett treat religious people as dim and uninformed. But it is as ridiculous when some evangelical propagandists try to show that atheists are, I quote, "...arbitrary, unreasonable, ignorant, inconsistent, irresponsible, disreputable, uncaring, and especially immoral." The great atheists of the 19th century often fought against Christianity because they saw hopes for an afterlife as a diminishing of one's commitment to improve life on earth and as an impediment for an intense guidance of life on earth or because they suspected Christian morality to be the cause of unnecessary feelings of guilt, a compulsion to detest one's own corporeality and a seduction to hypocrisy in interaction all these negative evaluations whether they are justified or not evidently are deeply moral. The same is true for many of those today who argue against religious faith on the basis of similar arguments except if they do this without real interest in the ways religious faith is lived and if they do this in ideologically distorted ways. More representative than such a deeply moral atheism in contemporary Europe is a routinized atheism without any serious understanding of what religion is all about. In 1895 the great Protestant theologian Ernst Trölsch suggested that atheist ethics has the promised consequences only as long as it compares itself with a specific religiously grounded morality that it tries to overcome. If it loses this point of comparison, it often also loses its motivational strength and noble character. Some developments in Europe's most secularized societies clearly support this suggestion. If we do not distinguish between different atheisms, different degrees of moral intensity here, no serious assertions about the moral consequences of secularization are possible. Moreover, recent American studies offer evidence that in the US even a majority of the children who grew up without religion develop religious commitments in the course of their lives. One survey revealed, now excuse the sociological language, I quote, that the unaffiliated have one of the lowest retention rates of any of the major religious groups, (laughs) with most people who were raised unaffiliated now belonging to one religious group or another. Those who leave the ranks of the unaffiliated cite several reasons for joining a faith, such as the attraction of religious services and styles of worship, having been spiritually unfulfilled while unaffiliated or feeling called by God. The unaffiliated population in the US is a very diverse group. Roughly four in ten unaffiliated individuals say religion is at least somewhat important in their lives. Many of those who remain unaffiliated leave open the possibility that they may one day join a religion. Their own self-understanding often is that they just have not found the right religion yet. Those findings apply only to the religiously intense or to the intensely religious United States and not to the secularized societies of Europe. Although the important role of Catholic and Protestant (coughs) schools in East Germany for example can also be interpreted as a crucial opening in an almost homogeneous secular landscape. In any case, predictions about the moral effects of secularization change if we do not consider secularization an irreversible process. In an intensely religious society at least, a lack of religious faith can be a mere generational phenomenon without long-term consequences. Second point, so far I have argued that moral orientations are often nourished by an imaginary deep structure that cannot simply be articulated in a conceptual language. When I turn to morality in tribal societies now my point is different. Here I would like to emphasize that in these societies fundamental structures of reciprocity in everyday life are a source of morality and that these fundamental structures of reciprocity are not determined by a religious imaginary. This can for example be demonstrated on the basis of a classical anthropological study from the 1920s, namely Bronislaw Malinowski's Crime and Custom in Savage Society. Marinovsky criticized two dominant ideas about such societies and he could do that on the basis of years of research on Melanesian tribes. He argued against the idea that savage people as this name indicated did not know laws or if such laws existed did not obey them or only in a capricious and unreliable way. But he also criticized the opposite you could say Durkheimian view, according to which the feeling of collectivity in such tribes is so strong that only a complete obedience regarding custom and tradition that regulate all details of everyday life is possible. Against these two views, which had often been defended by armchair anthropologists Marinovsky develops a third view based on his empirical study of economic life namely, in this case, the practice of collective fishing. He gives us detailed descriptions of the cooperation of men when they use large boats for fishing. All the men taking part in such endeavors expect, of course, their share of the catch. I quote, the ownership and use of the canoe consists of a series of definitive obligations and duties uniting a group of people into a working team. Thus, on a close inquiry, we discover in this pursuit a definite system of division of functions and a rigid system of mutual obligations, into which a sense of duty and the recognition of the need of cooperation enter side by side with the realization of self-interest, privileges and benefits. It is the sum of duties, privileges and mutualities which bind the joint owners to the object and to each other. A similar mechanism like the one that can be found among the cooperating fishermen can be observed in the relationship between coastal and inland villages. There are complex relations of exchange of vegetable for fish, but in annual cycles, for example, in which each community has a weapon for the enforcement of its rights, namely reciprocity. Exchange partners are often connected on multiple levels, for example, also through marriage. Like all rules of reciprocity that are based on utility calculations, these rules are constantly under the threat of deviant behavior. But these rules are also flexible and allow individual interpretation. Malinowski's conclusion was that in addition to the religiously founded penal law, reciprocity is a foundation for social life. There is a primitive form of civil law, as there is a primitive, if you excuse this expression, primitive, as there is a primitive form of penal law. I quote Malinowski there must be in all societies a class of rules too practical to be backed up by religious sanctions, too burdensome to be left to mere goodwill, too personally vital to individuals to be enforced by any abstract agency. Now, Malinowski's study converged with the research of his friend Marcel Moos on the fundamental importance of the gift for the constitution of social relations. In a different way, the emphasis on reciprocity can also be found in the work of Claude Lévi-Strauss, who took Moos' work as his point of departure in his study of the role of reciprocity for the elementary structures of kinship. You can also find this in a very different way now in the research in developmental psychology that shows that children can learn fundamental moral rules, for example fairness in games without indoctrination or authority, simply by discovering the conditions for long term successful cooperation. Without discussing these extremely well-known studies by Jean Piaget, Lawrence Kohlberg and others, one can say that social reciprocity is a source of morality that is not based in a religious imaginary and that is therefore probably not directly affected by secularization processes. Third, but there are limits to reciprocity. On the one hand, immediate reciprocity is sufficient only under very simple conditions. Even Malinowski's and levi strausss savage societies were more complex than that. As soon as there is a third party in an interaction chain, ABC, we have a problem of circulation. If I expect a return service not from my direct partner but from somebody else, and in the future, trust becomes important these problems are currently the subject matter of numerous important neo-utilitarian studies on the other hand reciprocity is also limited because our lifetime is limited the best way to put it comes from the American baseball legend Yogi Berra always go to other people's funerals otherwise they won't come to yours (laughs) I like that (laughs) Why should, we, why should we feel obliged to give the love we have received from our parents to our children? This is the point where many would say that the morality of reciprocity is unstable and in need of additional namely religious support. Now this idea is plausible far as value commitments, for example a commitment to the value of justice reduces the tendency to refuse reciprocity as in free rider behavior. But such a commitment does not have to go beyond a commitment to the rules of fair cooperation, as articulated in the Golden Rule or in a more sophisticated way in the categorical imperative. Even if the idea of Kant or the early Habermas that rational motivation in this sense can be strong and sufficient is not justified. This does not mean that only religious motivation can help to stabilize it. Such a stronger motivational power can also come from intense experiences for example of a negative quality. Suffering and degradation may lead to revenge and violence but they may also make evident to some that human dignity and non-violence are values and this can happen with people who don't have any religious affiliation the history of human rights shows very complex patterns of interaction between secular and religious ideas and such often negative experiences and certainly cannot be reduced to one part of it as if only Christianity, or only an alleged anti-religious enlightenment made them possible. Moreover, the impact of religion on the fundamental structures of reciprocity in a society is not always stabilizing for morality. This point I would like to illustrate by using a literary example, a tale written by the great Christian Russian storyteller Nikolai Leskov, at the end of the world from 1875. The topic of the story is the failure of Russian Orthodox missionary efforts in Siberia and Central Asia. Why are they so much less successful than those of Protestant missionaries coming from outside Russia? Is the lack of success due to their low level of education and a certain clumsiness of the Russian clergy. The novella is told by a bishop who travels to these faraway places in order to find out what the causes of the failure are. To his surprise, he finds out that it is the best and the brightest clerics who have the greatest doubts about missionary activities. In a horrible blizzard, the bishop gets help from an unbaptized tribesman while a baptized member of the same tribe, in his contemptible egoism, lets down the cleric he had to accompany. Individual baptism takes members of the tribe out of their networks of social reciprocity. One of them, that is my favorite example, sacrifices himself for his fellow tribesmen and undergoes baptism again and again under different names because he attempts to spare the others the fate of this loss of trust. Do you understand the example? I I like this a lot. (laughs) And confession is used by the newly baptized as a justification for the neglect of their obligations in the reciprocity networks. Misdeeds for which they would traditionally have offered compensations are now considered to be no longer relevant because of the sacrament of confession. It would be easy, of course, to dismiss such behavior as based on ridiculous misunderstandings of confession and baptism, but Lieskov's intention was to show that sometimes an alleged success of missionary activities cannot really be justified if one has a deeper understanding of the gospel. In these cases, not secularization, but missionary work is the cause of moral decline. Fourth. Summarizing my reflections, I would say, so far, there is no serious evidence for the assumption that secularization leads to moral decline. This may partly be due to the persistence of moral orientations that originally emerged out of a religious imaginary, but retained their power after cutting off the connection to this context of origin. More importantly, The structures of human cooperation can lead the individuals to meet the obligations of reciprocity, either out of a rational calculation of the conditions for long-term cooperation or out of a commitment to the value of justice, fairness. This value and other morally relevant values can have their basis in positive experiences for example in role models who transmit moral or religious values or in negative experiences, for example of injustice or degradation. Morality has two sources, as I already argued in my book The Genesis of Values. Values and value constitutive experiences on the one hand, the reflection on the conditions of cooperation on the other. Systems of norms can be derived top-down from specific values, or abstracted bottom up from cooperations. Actors take both points of view into consideration the right and the good. To reduce all moral questions to the right is as one sided as to reduce them all to the good. The good is not necessarily based on religious views. Values need God. That was a slogan of the recently defeated Berlin campaign Pro Rally. You won't know about that, but that's the context in which I wrote this paper originally. (laughs) Despite my support for this campaign, I could not subscribe this slogan. I think religious believers should not proclaim their faith as being indispensable for morality. They certainly cannot articulate their values without, without referring to their faith but they should articulate their faith in ways that invite non-believers to accept their values if not their faith. They should not exclude anybody from accepting the values who does not accept the faith. In my eyes the most important conflict today is not between believers and non-believers but between universalists of religious or non-religious convictions on the one hand and anti-universalists of religious or non-religious convictions on the other. For me the message of the gospel is the strongest imagination of universalism in history. But I am well aware that for others other religious teachings or Kant's philosophy or Habermas's philosophy or other forms of philosophical argumentation have a similar status. For some, such philosophies are not so much an articulation of historically emerging values, but their rational, definitive, and as such super-temporal and context-independent justification. In my view, this does not do justice to Kant, nor to other such philosophies, but it is certainly legitimate to have differing views on the meaning of justification in the area of values and to argue about the most appropriate of such justifications. What worries me is not that secularization destroys morality but that a weakening of Christianity could weaken one of the strongest foundations of moral and legal universalism. If this universalism came into being when the idea of transcendence came up in the so-called Axial Age, according to Karl Jaspers, then we cannot be sure that universalism can survive if the idea of transcendence gets lost. But such a worry is not a battle cry. Thank you.